Welcome to Beyond the Edge with your host, Dennis Young. Dennis helps companies solve their most challenging business issues, rapid growth, disruption, and mentorship. Working closely with entrepreneurs, he's experienced the highs and lows of building successful businesses. He's seen people with great ideas fail, while others soar beyond imagination. Why do some succeed while others don't? What is the winning formula? Let's find out. Hi, my name is Dennis Young. Welcome to Beyond the Edge. Today's podcast is about innovation leadership. Former CEO of Motorola, Bob Galvin, once said, If you have a hard decision, I respectfully suggest that it is because you have not sufficient creative thinking. How can you make the best decision if you haven't got the best option? We see examples every year of companies that disappear from the Fortune 100 or 500, and we are seeing massive market cap companies appear with business models that did not exist a few years ago. We see startups that grow rapidly and successfully, while others fail. We see organizations with 20-plus-year-old cultures that cannot evolve, while others continuously reinvent and transform. Leadership styles have been studied for a long time. Innovation is not new, but is certainly on a very fast trajectory. Combining innovation and leadership and discussing both is the subject of today's podcast. I am delighted to welcome two very special guests today who are considered to be world leaders in sparking, cultivating, and demonstrating innovative leadership. You will hear from Dr. Susan Murray, who is drawing from her academic, research, and organizational work with individuals, groups, and teams as they strive towards accelerated excellence in their business lives. You will also hear from Dr. Wakash Al-Siddiq, a serial entrepreneur whose specialization in digital, analog, embedded, and microelectronic products has allowed him to take his company public just a few weeks ago. Dr. Murray holds a bachelor and master's degree in education from Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador. She also holds a master's degree in business management research and a doctorate of business administration from Henley Business School, University of Reading, United Kingdom. Her dissertation was on the topic of cultivating leadership. Susan is an adjunct professor at Memorial and a professor at Humber College, University of Toronto, and Rothman School of Management, Toronto. Dr. Wakash is CEO and founder of Biotricity. He's a serial entrepreneur, a former investment advisor, and an expert in wireless communications technology. Wakash holds a bachelor's degree in computer engineering and economics. He masters in computer engineering from Rochester Institute of Technology, and a master's in business administration and a doctorate in business administration from Henley Business School, specializing in transformative innovations and billion-dollar markets. As CEO of Biotricity, a medical diagnostic and consumer healthcare company, Wakash has guided and continues to lead the company through every stage of its development in biometric remote monitoring solutions. Of significance is that Wakash and his team rang the bell at the opening of the NASDAQ exchange on October 7, 2021. 
Welcome, Susan and McCosh, to this episode of Beyond the Edge. Today's topic will be a tough one, as we attempt to build, through a series of questions, the intersection of innovation and leadership, which on their own are unique concepts. You both work independently, but you have known each other for a while, so I'm also excited to get to know you guys a little better. Let's start with you, Susan. Can you tell me a little about your work and the kinds of transformation issues that you get involved with every day on a national and international level? Thanks, Dennis, and it's an honor to be here today with Dr. Al-Sadiq as well, uh, or as I like to call him, Wakas. Uh, so me in particular, I have a doctorate in leadership. I tend to focus on the concepts of leadership from both theory and practice. I work with organizations globally in this space, looking at how leaders develop, uh, leaders work within organizations uh, through a strategic lens, through the lens of leadership and strategy. And um, my work has tended to focus both on the public and private sector. Bottom line, how, uh, what do leaders need to do to make organizations successful? So uh, I have the joy of working in the Middle East and China and around Canada in both public, private, and nonprofit sectors to hopefully help others uh, discover their journey a little bit more too. Wakash, you are working in a very dynamic private sector that is radically changing how products and services are being brought to market. Can you give me a sense of the work that you do and the exciting ways in which you approach them? Thank you, Dennis. Uh, Great to be here and uh, nice to be here with Susan as well. So in terms of my background, my focus in my work and, and my doctorate is in transformative innovations and the environments that foster those innovations. Uh, in terms of my career and what I focus on, I'm a serial entrepreneur and the CEO of a company called Biotricity, which is revolutionizing digital health in terms of remote monitoring and, and really care delivery and, and the transformation of care delivery today. Outside of that, where I really apply my knowledge outside of within uh, the organization itself is through my advisory roles in board seats in other companies. Um, I, I continue to do investment banking consulting for a number of private equity firms. And I uh, guest lecture in, in certain uh, forums and in, in certain universities to talk about the application of transformative innovations and environments uh, to facilitate uh, the creation of ideas. Okay, guys, let's start with a definition of leadership. Let's think about it in the context of today, our business climate issues we're facing as uh, organizations and trying to deal with the challenges of, well, the pandemic. How about I take that one, cost? When I think about leaders and when I work with leaders, successful leaders, I look at leaders who are able to create a strong vision. They are able to set a direction within their organization. They facilitate the structures and processes and ideas to generate the strategy for the organization to move forward. They have a strong focus on people. They're able to foster the team spirit needed with their people, with their followers, with their employees in order to truly create that change necessary for the strategy to be successful. They're employer-centric, but they're also outcome-centric. They play that fine balance between the push and the pull, the charisma and the force needed, that balance of power that really makes them effective. Because did you want to add a little bit to that? 
Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Susan. And and that's very well said. So one of the things and you know, me, I'm always, as you know, very applied in my thinking. And there's three things that always come to mind when I think of, of a, a leader. And, you know, Susan touched on that. One is a, a very strong vision and ideation. They do have an involvement in the creation and the creation process, as, as Susan was talking about. And in terms of that push and pull, one of the things that resonates with me is they create an environment of impatience. So innovative leaders are very impatient, but in a very productive way. It's a sense of urgency. They create a sense of urgency. And what that sense of urgency does is it creates pressure to innovate, to ideate. And and if you don't facilitate and align that with an environment where people can fail, then it doesn't work. Because what ends up happening is you create all of this pressure, but people don't have the freedom to actually create or ideate because they're afraid that if they create something that doesn't work, they're going to be held accountable or responsible in a negative context. So aligning those, which, which is really tough, to create the sense of urgency, say, go and create ideas. But by the way, I'm not going to blame you if you fail. I'm not going to hold it against you if something doesn't work. And so this environment where everything is urgent, you have to create, uh, the vision is aligned, and yet the managers and the people there are given the tools and the resources to create, but they will accept failure and the leader will take that failure and say, okay, great, let's move on to the next thing. And just because you had one failure, what did you learn? Just don't repeat that mistake. So I think that goes back to what Susan was saying about the push and pull. And those two components working together really creates an an amazing environment for people to flourish. When we consider a traditional leader in a major organization, they've been working with norms that have been around for a long time. They're well-defined, people know their roles, responsibilities. The organization is working on metrics. Now we're looking at adding innovation to the equation and the ground shifts to risk-taking. So guys, what do you think about that? How does an organization feel safe when now you've added risk to the equation? I think you really need that sense of confidence in where you are and what you do, that sense of self and knowing what you're about in terms of, I would say, if we look at it, you need to be able to lead yourself, you need to be able to lead people, and you need to be able to lead the organization. And the concept of self, people, and organization as a totality from a leadership perspective, you need to be there in order to truly be innovative. That sense of confidence that you've built, that you've created through your learning, your ongoing self-development is critical. I think what Cosme might have said it a few moments ago, in leading people, it's the how to be and the what to be and knowing what you expect. One of our participants, one of the people that we interviewed in some of our work together, that for leadership to be innovative, it's the race to the thought. And that really stood out to me when I was listening to them. So you need to be a strong thinker. You need to have great knowledge. and You constantly need to be learning as a leader in order to be innovative. Mukas, remember when that person said that? And uh, what what is it we need to... So if that's the thinking, in the doing, what does that look like? Do we have to be nice? Do we have to be charismatic? Do we have to be kind? And I would say, again, it's that push-pull. That needs to be there. But it also needs to couple be coupled with not accepting complacency, to be truly competitive and to truly stand on that edge as Bocost was mentioning a few moments ago. And I'll just add a little bit to that. And that's exactly right, Susan. So, you know, you, you made a good point when you 
kind of bifurcated dentists is there's, there's the leaders that are hired, right? And they're brought in and their job is to lead the company to the next transformation or what have you. They have a job uh, description. And then there are the leaders that innovate. And this idea of a, the race to thought and this idea of confidence, because you have to have supreme confidence in your vision and, and your idea and what you're trying to do. And the reason I say that is because, and to even your point, uh, which you mentioned uh, risk-taking, Dennis, because generally when you're innovating and, and creating something, you're creating something that does not exist. And so by nature, your data set is very limited. So you have to be very confident, as Susan mentioned, in your conviction that this is what the market needs. And what I have found in a lot of innovation, when you look at a lot of these companies, these uh, innovative leaders, they have a sense of what is required, even though the data is not necessarily present. And they're able then to collect additional data and they are able to test. And, And one of the things about being able to take the first risk, the second component, which is, I think, uh, humbling in, in, in a sense, is that they're open to creative destructions, they're open to failure, and they're open to ideas because they know their idea is not perfect because how can they? There's no data that supports the fact that this market need is there and that if they build it, it's automatically going to become a billion-dollar opportunity. Or, uh, so what they actually need is they need to take that idea and polish it, right? And make it better. And for that, they need input. And so where they create impatience and they create a sense of urgency and they're confident in their idea, on the flip side of that, that confidence is measured with somebody coming in and saying, hey, that's actually wrong. That feature set is wrong. Here's what I think. And they're willing to accept that criticism. So confidence and acceptance of criticism. And these are these are very unique things. And you know, I go back to what Susan was saying, this push and pull, because having push and pull in a personality and in a small group of people is very, very difficult because it's these polarizing concepts that are working together to foster uh, creative innovation. And if I could build on that just a little bit more, Wakas, because you talked about the push and pull and that willingness to take risks. It's that fine line between confidence and arrogance too that can truly define an innovative leader. If we think of the word leader and think of the word arrogance, that, that sense of power can also detract from the success of the organization as well. All right, so let's talk about culture. Some cultures are well-defined, structured. Others are not. Others are breaking down barriers, going digital, empowering their employees. How does the impact of culture, or another way of asking it, how does culture impact a leader's ability to be innovative? I'm thinking about some of the cultures that are well known, such as Google or Apple or some of the more, you know, the the automotive cultures or the electric car cultures. Let's take Tesla, for example. And when we interview people within those companies, they'll talk about the engagement of the leader, even in the interview process for an entry-level employee, because they want the right stuff, Dennis, to make to make that strategy, to move into that market space, to explore that new blue ocean. But what does that leader look and sound like? I mean, we've idealized leadership in the sense that we're always looking for that charismatic person, that quote that's going to stick, that that sense of kindness and niceness that kind of symbolizes leadership for many people. But I would suggest that within an innovative culture, that we want to 
look for the characteristics in the leader of tolerance and empathy. The being able to safely create that psychological safety needed for innovation to occur, but at the same time, not putting up with anything. Knowing that if you are working for this person, that they're going to allow you to fail, that they trust you, that they're tolerant of your skills and abilities, but they're also going to hold you highly accountable as well. You might not like them every day, and that's okay, but you're there with a common vision and a common goal in mind. And I'll just add a little bit to that because Susan brings up a, a very good point about what we define as leaders and then what type of leaders require, or do we need for innovation and then how do they facilitate that environment? And, you know, it's, it's funny, um, whenever I think about entrepreneurship, there's an article in Economist a few years back and there's a line in there which always stayed and resonated with me. And it was the conclusion of uh, the article was saying that entrepreneurship is like chewing glass. And so if you just stop for a second and you think about the leaders that are innovating, right? And that's the pressure that they're in. And in that crucible, they have to create something and they have a sense of urgency because they don't have any time, right? They, they have a number of stakeholders that require them to move at lightning speed and to bring people into that crucible, right? And if you take that sentence of chewing glass, right? Who wants to take on that, right? And to be able to bring people into that and enable them and put them into such a pressure cooker, if you will, and create a sense of urgency and yet let those people feel, uh, like Susan was saying, like they're, they're, uh, they're safe so that they can come up with ideas. And that requires this, uh, these two somewhat polarizing impacts and ideas in one person, right? You're confident and supremely confident that this is the product, this is what the market requires. And yet you're open to somebody coming in and saying you're wrong. And you're saying, okay, fine, I'm wrong. Give me an idea that works. And if the idea that you brought in after saying that the person is wrong ends up failing, they're not going to hold it against you. They're going to say, okay, give me another idea. And so this idea of being confident, yet not arrogant, and yet being open and putting everybody into this pressure cooker and maintaining that type of urgency. Because what I find is one of the most important aspects of innovative culture is creating a sense of urgency. And creating a sense of urgency and maintaining that sense of urgency. And, and you talk about how do big organizations do that, right? How do you come in and create a sense of urgency on a product concept and maintain it? And you have to maintain it for years. So that's, that's an aspect that I think that when you tie back to your question about how does a big organization go in and focus on that, they have to bring people in and they have to put a leader that creates a sense of urgency and allows and facilitates people within that group to fail and try and ideate, but maintaining that sense of urgency. And so if you do that, I think you can actually create these subcultures or sub-environments within an organization that are able to create and create ideas. Now, the big thing that we discussed in some of the work that we did together is how does that impact a broader organization? And a, an effective leader is going to say, hey, this group that I've set up that is creating a product, yes, it's going to disrupt. It's going to disrupt everything that you know. It's going to completely transform the company if it's successful, but it's going to make it better for the organization. It's going to make it better for you. Because the other problem that ends up happening is that you can have 
different groups within the, the organization, especially an established organization that are saying, oh, these guys are going to disrupt what we're doing. And they don't see how they fit into that. So you have to make sure that the rest of the organization is invested in the success of this new innovative pod that you're creating. And that's what comes back to where that common vision is. And that's where that all links back to who are you hiring? How are they feeling engaged? And I don't mean in the in the nice staff room or the ability to walk around the Google campus. I mean, truly engaged in terms of their mind is engaged, their thought is engaged. And how are you constantly communicating that and dealing with that and being candid and dealing with if you're not seeing it, if an employee is not up to par, that you're quite comfortable in letting them go or addressing that. It's that within a flat organization, outside the hierarchy of so many, you know, let's take the public sector, for example, are we ever going to see that? I don't know, because the processes and systems within hierarchies are quite different than in innovative cultures. I almost hate to say this, but I'll put it out there. Will we truly ever see innovation within the public sector when we currently have the systems and processes and challenges that we have in terms of the complacent attitudes that we deal with every single day? At Barrington Edge, we see the world differently. Our multidisciplinary team of strategy consultants Functional experts, designers, and technologists help solve our clients' most challenging business problems. We are professional entrepreneurs who partner with exceptional companies and brilliant inventors to build world-class solutions to address global problems and to help accelerate this innovation to a global stage. So the pandemic, the pandemic has turned everything upside down. Working from home, people realigning work-life balance, even the introduction of digital to the way we talk to each other. These rapid advances are allowing some companies, Tesla, for example, Amazon, to completely reinvent some of our industries. Take retail, for example. How do you think our leaders in general are gonna rise to this challenge? Well, Klaus, I'm going to throw that one to you first. <laughs> no problem. So, you know, one of the things that I have, um, and, and, and of course, my experience in the public sector is limited. I come more from the private sector. And one of the things that I'm constantly seeing when we look at how people are interviewing and this, this, uh, this culture of bringing people in, especially now that we have employment, looking for individuals and the type of individuals, especially in the leadership positions, because there are people that are very interested, excited in creating something, right? And it's really about how do you present that position and what type of people are you recruiting? And that recruitment process is very critical, as well as also who is the head, right, of that department? Because I think that if you hire at the top the right way, then that kind of permeates down. And then the entire recruitment process and how you're bringing individuals in is aligned to this. And what you really do. And so when I look at, and, and I'll just take a page out of you know my advisory and, and my board work and my investment banking experience, when I'm giving my advice to investors or giving my advice to the team, what I'm looking for is how are they actually recruiting people? What types of people are they recruiting? And is part of that recruitment 
selling the vision and this idea that you're going to be a part of something and create something. So this idea of creative destruction, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're going to go into the public sector, and I I think it goes into the public sector as well, but in the private sector, you can go in and say, hey, we're going to reboot this company, right? This is the way you are recruiting the individuals. We're going to reboot this company. We're going to completely throw everything that we want out the window. And we want to bring you a part of that. And the idea is, how do we change the way we work? How do we change the way we think of product development? How do we change what we're building as a product? And what we want to build is we want to look at the world 10 years from now and work on a product that is going to be a, uh, you know, meet the needs five years and, and 10 years out. And so when you recruit like that, you're selling a story and a vision. And what I find is that individuals get excited about that. Now, what happens is it's a lot harder to recruit those types of people, by the way, right? Many people, and I think that there are groups of people that they want a good, stable job and they don't want to be in that, you know, chewing glass kind of crucible that I talked about, right? It takes a lot. But then there are people who are really excited about creating something, doing something new. And so I think this idea of recruiting and explaining this vision and this idea of creative destruction and how things are transforming and you're going to be a part of that, that is very exciting for a lot of people. It'll take time to recruit those individuals. But if you make that a part of the process, you can find the right types of people versus you're just hiring for positions and you're filling those positions and then you're trying to create that environment and culture. So it becomes maybe two times, maybe five times the effort because your core team that you recruited, you recruited to fill a job function, not to fill a vision function. And that, I think, is a, is, is a key component, right, in how you bring people into an environment. And I'll turn that back to Susan because, you know, Susan, you have the experience in looking at leaders and leaders for specific organizations and getting them to think about innovation. And maybe I'm incorrect, but I think that if you hire or you train at the top or at least at a department level, even a department head, they will make that vision and that transformation a part of their recruitment process. And that's why that department will always function better. And that's why they'll get better people. Totally agree. And even if we take from the private sector lens into the public sector lens, from a leadership development perspective, I agree with you totally. It's how are we working with those that are in this space at the moment to really build that concept of, I'm going to change the words a little bit, creative construction to work with the, uh, those that we currently have, and who are we hiring? What does that look like? How are they aligning with the vision of where we need to be? If we think of some of the governments here in Canada, for example, what does that look like? What do we need to do differently? Um, You know, the systems are such, particularly in the public sector, it's very difficult to dismiss somebody unless it's extreme. So we're, we're tasked with the lens of developing people instead. But when we do recruit and when we do hire, we need to make sure that we're making the right investment and hiring the right people. And we could go into, of course, the concepts of diversity and inclusion, which we certainly need to consider uh, when we're creating the best teams to do what we need to do. But I think if I was a senior leader in government again, uh, these are things, these are conversations I would be having with my executive directors, uh, with my team. And this would be the work that we're doing. How are we seeing, How are we using our time wisely? How are we addressing complacency? 
how are we recruiting and hiring the right people for the organization who have that long-term commitment to success, not just to having the job. It's unlocking that, I'll use the word intrinsic motivation, the ability to do good and do better uh, versus just getting a paycheck. These are terrific insights, guys. I love the concept of vision versus job function. It's very hard to innovate within, especially within a large company, because people are set in their roles. I'm in manufacturing or I'm in marketing. I know my job and my job description. Whereas innovative companies can't work that way. They will never get there. Time is so crucial. So how do leaders then set that stage in a visionary company with the kind of people they recruit? Susan, I'll let you start with that one. Deep question. So who would I hire for that organization? Obviously, for thinking about people. If the leader has that vision of change, of constant change, of, I'll use one of my favorite, of blue ocean thinking, who do I need with me and what does that look like? How do I recruit and retain people that will be able to change on a dime? Because that's what we're all going to need to be able to do. Uh, and I mean, we've had to, particularly over the past year and a half. So who am I looking for? How do they sound? How do they look? I think we've learned through our global lens, particularly now that you know we've had to work in different spaces, particularly at home, that leaders need to think beyond their four walls and beyond their province, beyond their current location, and really cast a net globally. They need to be looking for people, not like them, people who are different, but people who bring the ability to think critically and creatively and to demonstrate an open mindset. They walk into a room and uh, communicate effectively, adapt to what they see and are constantly willing to bring ideas. The old concept of leader and followers, it's there, but I think that this is becoming much more flattened. A leader certainly has a specific role in often being the face of an organization, but I think it's that concept of shared leadership and shared responsibility that's going to be truly dominant, particularly as organizations evolve, or I think of Wilcox's businesses and who he might be looking for in terms of creating new ventures and new blue oceans. Wilcox, who do you look for and what should they look like? So I'm going to take a couple notes from uh, you know what I talked about earlier, but when I look at recruiting and when I look at individuals and in, in, like I was talking about earlier in terms of my advice when I sit on the board, I'm always looking for individuals that resonate with the vision. They're actually interested, right? Interest is number one for me. Like, are you interested in the vision and what's going on? And so a big part of the recruitment for me is really aligning the people that are coming in with the vision to see if they are excited about that. They're resonating, they're invested in it because it's almost like, and, and it's hard to recruit for because it's, it's like a 24 seven. It's, you know, you go home, you put your feet on the couch, you're watching, but you're ideating, your mind is turning, right? The gears in your mind are always turning because you're always interested in thinking about what is going on. So when I'm looking at recruiting, I, I'm really looking at what is your level of interest? Are you truly interested, excited, energized about the space? Or are you really looking for a job function to gain a certain kind of experience and, and what have you? And so a lot of that is during the interview process and during the recruiting process, 
I try to understand what this person sees in terms of their vision, what they see as gaps in the industry. So I interview in a very unique way where I want to hear from them about how they evaluate the market. How do they evaluate the industry? Are they looking at the industry? And very quickly, what you'll realize is some people are very, they're acutely aware of what's happening in the market because they, they have this interest on how things are changing, what other companies are doing, what's changing in the landscape, and other people are not really aware. And so this interest is number one for me. Are you interested and are you looking at this in that context? And then the other thing that I look for is from an individual perspective and, and whether or not they have had roles and previous experience in the creative process, in product process, in putting something out, whether it was a product, whether it was a service or what have you. And so what ends up happening is that anybody who's been a part of that process they know the intensity that, that comes in at certain cycles, right? When you are actually launching a product or launching a service and the energy that is required and the multifaceted nature of that. And the last thing that I look for is from an experience, and, and this comes back from some of the work, is that are these individuals, have they been ever in a role where they wear multiple hats? Because a big part of ideation and a big part of thinking outside the box is collecting data from many different points. And so if you've had a, a history or a work experience where you were in different roles, you know, some people find that as, a, as actually a negative concept. And they're like, OK, they don't have 15 years experience in a particular area. But in my case, I find that as that's going to give them an idea and it will allow them to create different concepts and be able to think more creatively. And this would speak also to their ability to work across teams and across departments as well in terms of that that integration of the work. So it's not that factory line thinking anymore. It's that I know what's happening over here in product development. Uh, and for my department, I want to be able to, from a program design lens, I want to be able to engage in that as well. So it's creativity often brings such an interesting concept. People think of the arts, but really it's that integration of thought and ideas and the ability to connect the disparate ideas to, to something greater. Okay, switching gears for a minute. Now you get to pick your dream team, your A team. Maybe you got a big problem to solve. Maybe you're under threat. Maybe your business is being disrupted. Or you get an opportunity to build a very quick, fast startup. Who's on the A team? What kind of people? Uh, I can take a stab at that. It's an interesting question. It's a deep question. And the A-team, you know, I would say there's no, uh, how do I say, it? there's no exact science to it, right? And I actually look at A-team in two different ways. So there's two different types of people that can be put into that A-team. So first, of course, if you're looking at finance and you want to re-engage the entire financial accounting process and what have you, you need your core, which are people that are from the space. They understand the space. They know what's going on. They know what status quo is. So I always look for people that know status quo, but the people who I look for who have done status quo, they have to have implemented it themselves. They have to have rolled up their sleeves. For A-teams, I refuse to hire people who are delegators. It's good to be able to delegate, but if you can't roll up your sleeves and do it yourself, you can't be a part of the A-team. So there are many great managers that have been a part of fantastic teams are great leaders that are part of fantastic teams. But when push come to shove, if they have to go in and actually set up 
the financial accounting system and they've been a CFO, they've been a control, whatever, they actually don't know how to do it or it would take them forever because they haven't done it in a long time. So I look for people who are from the space and who have experience in actually implementing and can roll up their sleeves and do it. And then what I do is I start picking people from different backgrounds that I think for whatever project it is, where that knowledge base and that skill set will provide value, right? So if we're looking at this, you know, hypothetical finance situation, I would be pulling in people from engineering and technology, like computer science and whatnot, but who have really focused on lots of users, lots of transactions, this type of stuff, because, you know, finance is all about transaction and transaction management. So bring somebody in from there. I'd bring someone in from resource planning, um, ERP systems, which is which is something separate, but again, gets connected to accounting. And then I would pick somebody from operations because, again, they understand how an organization, from an operational perspective, finances on the other side of operations. So I would pick people from all around finance that finance actually services because who an organization is servicing. And, and if you're servicing the customer, you bring somebody that is close to the customer as well, sales in this case, right? So what you're doing is all of the stakeholders that are consumers of whatever you're trying to innovate on, they are part of the AT because they're bringing in that perspective. And if I can't find experienced stakeholders or experienced people who are coming in, I go the exact opposite. I go for very low experience, but high aptitude and high energy, super interested people, right? Where it goes back to what I was saying earlier, how do I find somebody that is very, very keen and interested in what have you? And so you wouldn't really think of that, right? So you're, I'm either looking for experienced, hands-on people or very inexperienced, high aptitude, high energy, transformational people. And the reason I, I do that is because those people are always thinking and ideating and they're not polluted with what is going on in the space. And so if you can't find somebody who knows the problems, you find somebody who doesn't know anything and, and, and use them as a blank slate. And then you put them on this A-team and they act as a sponge that collect all this information and keep on asking why this way. And so that combination is my A-team, right? Combining this experience, hands-on people with these inexperienced people and bringing in all the stakeholders that are consumers of whatever you're trying to innovate who represent those voices in the conversation. And then I say, okay, let's go. So if you're customer-focused or consumer-focused, you hear driven, you hear engagement, you hear experience and knowledge in terms of the key factors that you're looking for. And I really like the way that you've balanced the inexperienced and the experience and avoiding that middle of the road. Because middle of the road echoes complacency for me, and that's going to get you nowhere. Susan, you work predominantly internationally with large organizations, public sector, governments, and so on. You're doing some amazing work in human capital transformation. I'd love to hear more about that. So what do I see and where do I see that being effective? Wakas told me once a few years ago when I was in Silicon Valley with him, just go to a coffee shop and listen to people talk. And it's this transfer of ideas and engagement uh, that I heard there versus the mundanity that we often hear in large organizations that really stood out to me. And this is what I listen for now when I'm interviewing leaders. What is that spark? What is that something that is really going to get people that create that sense of urgency? And I would suggest that it's diversity of thought and it's a focus on values and a focus on competitiveness. 
so many of those other components of leadership, whether it's tolerance and uh, employee engagement and setting the vision, all of those things are critical, of course, to the work of leaders. But how are we using our words? How are we communicating our values? How are we truly walking the talk and living what we want things to be? So when I think about value statements, walking the talk, how am I showing, for example, my value of doing good, of taking care of people is being lived and emanated through an organization? If we think of a school system in terms of helping students be successful as a leader, what does that look like and sound like? And am I doing that? Am I truly being a role model for how I want people to be? How am I addressing complacency? And for me, this is critical to large organizations. We can say lots, we can write lots, but what are we doing? And how are we living that daily and how we work with people? And therefore, how is that having that ripple effect through the organization? All right, guys, let's set the stage for a couple of final questions. We started discussing the goal today of coming to the intersection of innovation and leadership. We've discussed both by thinking about small nimble companies. We've talked about fast-starting, large-cap startup companies. And we talked about large, complex, traditional organizations. So when you think about all that and the conversation today, can you take a stab at defining innovative leadership as one concept? A leader. The concept of leader and leadership. Let me see if I can bring it together. And I've been thinking about this a lot. So leadership is about balance, particularly if we're trying to create an innovative culture. It's that balance of push and pull, of openness, of failure and success, of empathy and drive, of confidence and arrogance that really helps us be innovative, to drive success, to to get out in that blue ocean, to be different from everyone else. Wakash? So innovation and leadership, the intersection. So, you know, I talked a lot about, you know, the environment and facilitating the environment. And so I always think of a leader that creates that type of environment characteristic of four key things, right? One is impatience. Impatience to ideate, impatience to create but impatience, confidence, like Susan talked about, confident in the idea that something is required, confidence in their vision, confidence that this is the direction, and confident in their idea and their vision and and that this is the way to go. But that coupled with an acceptance of ideas, an acceptance of criticism, an acceptance of, of new concept, new features, or even a new idea that supersedes theirs. So being confident in having this conviction and yet being accepting of new ideas and open to new ideas, and then creating an environment where your team can fail, fail fast, and not be held accountable. And this is, goes back to Susan talked uh, earlier in, in the podcast about creating this sense of safety for your team. And so creating that culture, so a leader that can create a culture where individuals know and they can foster and facilitate this environment where people know that they can fail and they just move on to the next uh, idea and they can fail again and they can fail multiple times, but 
again, everybody's moving towards the same vision. And so, you know, to summarize again, it's impatience, confidence, acceptance of ideas, and this creation of a acceptance of failure culture. That's great, guys. Fantastic. Fantastic. So one final question in two parts. First part, and I'm going to use some examples here, not to be critical, but just to illustrate. So question number one, you're a design engineer and you work for Ford or Tesla. Is there a difference? So I'll take that since, since it's in my wheelhouse. Today, if Ford has a design engineer that's uh, different than te- Tesla, that's a problem. So the design engineer in both places should be thinking forward. In fact, I would argue and I would want the CEO of Ford to actually have a more innovative design engineer than Tesla. So while Tesla's thinking about electrical cars, he's thinking about flying cars. Okay. Susan. I agree with Wakas on this one. I mean, Tesla companies like that are known for being innovative. They're out there. So I would hope that the more established companies like Ford or Chevy are really hiring and recruiting people who are as, are thinking of flying to the moon, which they don't, versus the work of Tesla. They need to have the better people now. They need to be recruiting and creating the structures that allow this sense of innovation and creativity to happen, and not just counting on Silicon Valley uh, or spaces such as that to truly be the most innovative companies in the world. Part two, public sector. Again, simply for illustration. You work for an amazing organization in Estonia or the DMV in Ohio. Is there a difference? Oh, Estonia. I'd love to be in Estonia. When I think of innovative cultures in terms of smart government services, that's where we want to be. They've, they've created such a creative and innovative space. So what do, I can sound different in Estonia than I do in, in Ohio. But if I'm the same person, I'm going to have to start to look for the right people within my organization at the moment that are going to help me create the change that we need. To, I'm assuming in Ohio, it's probably still very, uh, still very 19th, 20th century. That's a biased opinion. But I need to start looking for my superstars, for those that are the Mavericks, those who are willing to start that journey with me into something new. Okay. Wakash? Ooh, that's a tough one because, you know, Estonia is, is, I mean, I think everything is basically online or uh, most things can be done online as opposed mm-hmm. to, to, to being in person. So what I would have to do is I would have to really, as somebody in, in Ohio in the DMV, I would look at Estonia and I would, would immediately say, okay, I got to break my group into two. Mm-hmm. I need to take my existing DMV culture, my existing employees, and I need to put them into an environment which is really about maintaining and transforming and being on the on the back office to support a new group of people that are going to come in and I, I don't want to say suck but like sponge the issues the problems the and and learn so you I, I would like do like these pairs right you take the person who does the front line and pair it with a, a, a tech oriented person that is thinking outside and and make them all in pairs every job has a pair and say okay your job is to sponge from the other your job is to supply as much information, no detail is, no stone unturned to your counterpart and let the new team develop the next gen of these services and you will support them 
in the transformation. You will support them in providing the information to lead that transformation. And I would get them excited saying that you're going to build the next generation of Ohio's DMV and every state is going to come to Ohio and say, what happened? So that's how I would I would do it. But I would literally have to break the team and, and set up like almost parallel counterparts yeah. um, to force the change. Otherwise, if I hire and add stuff, and like Susan said earlier, middle middle is stagnation, right? So you're adding and stuff. It's, it's just it's not going to be drastic enough to, to to align with with what's going on in in some of these uh, more innovative uh, environments. I use the word mavericks, and because <laughs> I was thinking about the people that you're talking about that you would bring to get together. This one organization I work with. He says, we are the cooking pot of the government. And this is where we bring people to do that ideation and to make that vision a reality. So at, at Ohio, I would bring together those people that you're talking about to be that cooking pot for, with me. Hey, guys, thank you. This has been terrific. It's wonderful to see both of you online. Uh, Susan, you're in St. John's, Wakash in California. I've really enjoyed getting to know both of you a little better. These insights are fantastic, and we're so excited to publish them in a couple of weeks. Thank you, Dennis. It was great to be with you today. Thank you, Dennis, for having us. Thank you, Susan and Mukosh. I've really enjoyed this episode, and please stay tuned for further episodes of Beyond the Edge. Barrington Edge blends strategy, design, and technology to build global solutions to global problems. To learn more, visit BarringtonEdge.com.